Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting new books. And this week I'm very happy to say we have Yuval Levin on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of the Right and the Left. I think almost anybody who went to college in my day, I don't know if they do this anymore, uh, had some segment of Western Civ or modern European history where they read uh, they read uh, Reflections on the Revolution or parts of Reflections on the Revolution in France and Rights of Man. I think I think they're even like there's a Penguin edition that puts them both together. I don't really recall. But anyway, uh, um, Yuval has written a book about uh, the people that wrote those things, Edmund Burke and, and Thomas Paine. And I think it's a it's an excellent book. It's very uh, it's, it's very straightforward in the way that he uh, analyzes uh, what these two fundamental thinkers have to say. He has his own opinions about them, but I, I thought it was kind of refreshing in that way. It's really a very direct book. And if you're interested in these kinds of things and the origins of the right and the left, and they lived in a time before rights and lefts, I think, um, then you should pick up this book. So first of all, let me say, Yuval, congratulations on the book. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. So um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I am uh, the editor of a quarterly journal called National Affairs, which is a uh, right-of-center journal of public policy and political thought, and I'm a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a Washington think tank. Uh, I've worked uh, on various policy issues as a White House staffer uh, in the George W. Bush administration, as a staffer in various congressional committees. Um, I am also a recovering political theorist. Uh, I have a PhD uh, from the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, and uh, so spent some time in the academy. And uh, the work I try to do now it really is at the intersection of those two, of political thought and political practice. And so I try in various ways to show how theory and practice relate to one another, how the debates that bubble at the surface of our politics are really functions of much deeper uh, ideas and questions that uh, lie beneath the surface, and that's what this book tries to do, too. Mm-hmm. And it does a nice job of it as well. And, you know, as I say, Bur- Bur- I'll just put my cards on the table. Burke is one of my favorite thinkers. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I don't say anything about pain. <laughs> you know, what really struck me in studying these two is actually that pain is a much more serious thinker than I thought coming into it. Um, I-, I set after myself to write a book about Edmund Burke and decided that one of the very best ways to understand him is actually in contrast uh, with with Thomas Paine, who was, of course, a direct interlocutor of his. They That's knew exactly each other, right. they exchanged yeah. letters, they exchanged published writings. Uh, but beyond that, and the book goes beyond their direct confrontation, they each expressed a worldview that was utterly in conflict with the other, mm-hmm. and they're each better understood in contrast with the other. So I came away with a higher opinion of Paine than I, than I came in with. Well, maybe I should revisit Paine then. I don't know if I'll have the opportunity to do that, but uh, I would like to. So tell us, um, you know, there's a zillion books out there to write. Why did you write this one? 
Yeah, you know, in a way, I wrote this one because a lot of the work that I do every day confronts the brute fact of right and left in our politics, the fact that our political life is divided between a broadly conservative and a broadly progressive party, that they seem coherent. That is, people who are on one side, uh, who stand together, say, on what to do about the deficit, very often also seem to stand together on a whole range of other questions that don't seem related, on education policy, on many of the social issues, on technical things like transportation, uh, healthcare, and it seems like the left and right really exist. They actually have some kind of intellectual coherence. We take it for granted that our politics works this way. And what this book tries to do is, rather than take it for granted, ask really what that is and why that is. And to do it in a particular way, by looking to history, by looking to what seems to have been one of the very first rounds of the left-right debate. Burke and Payne didn't think of themselves in terms of left and right, but they each expressed a vision that I think is, is appropriately described as a liberal vision, and yet in very, very different ways. They had different views of what it means to be a liberal society in mm -hmm. modern age, where Payne sees the liberal society as a kind of application of principles discovered in the Enlightenment that requires their further perfection and application. Burke sees the liberal society as an achievement, an achievement of Western civilization uh, that has to be guarded and refined. And so Paine's politics leads him to a kind of progressive mindset. Burke's leads him to a more conservative mindset. And you begin to see some of the differences that, once you see them, they're just everywhere in our contemporary politics. Mm -hmm. Obviously, today's left and right aren't simply extensions of Burke and Payne by any means. They've changed a lot, and the book talks about that, too. But I think it helps a lot to see where this kind of way of thinking started in that extraordinarily interesting and important debate uh, mm -hmm. age of revolutions. Mm -hmm. Before we go on to talk about um, Burke and Payne, just while I was listening to you, I, I couldn't help but reflect that now, I could be totally wrong here, but with the possible exception of John Stuart Mill, there have been no great touchstone political thinkers since Burke and Payne. Am I wrong about that? I mean, I sure, people like Robert Nozick and what was the fellow at Harvard? I can't remember his name. Uh, John Rawls. But, you know, people, yeah. Yeah, people that really have shaped or captured, I guess, the way that we think about politics. Have there been any since the two of them? Again, Mill might be an exception. Yeah, well, Mill certainly would be an exception. I think some people would say Marx was an exception, yeah. uh, at least for a while. Right, for a while. But again, that's kind of like we don't turn to Marx anymore when we think yeah, about explanations. Yeah, it's true. You know, when the left and right today look for their own foundations, they each have a lot of trouble. Uh, <laughs> quite an extraordinary amount of trouble, actually. Uh, I, I would say conservatives in particular try to look for their own intellectual foundations. And one of the things you find is that they end up being drawn to actually much more radical intellectual foundations. When they try to turn philosophical, uh, they tend to become Jeffersonians. They tend mm -hmm. to defend the most radical version of the American Revolution. They don't really have access much of the time to a kind of Burkean articulation of, yeah. uh, of the society. And on the left, there just isn't much turning back to, to roots, even to the progressives of 100 years ago, mm -hmm. alone, the era of the founding. Yeah. I just find it kind of remarkable, and it's, I guess this is a point in Burke's favor, that there's been this kind of conservatism about our, our sort of touchstone political documents. I mean, sure, the Federalist Papers and, you know, some of the writings yeah. of Jefferson, but, but these two fellows and their output are really, you know, you can read them with great profit even today. They have yeah. not gotten old. <laughs> no. We live yeah, in their world. Such profound questions that... Uh, the, 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 the basic question of what the what the modern what the liberal society is 
is still very much alive, and they get at it in ways that uh, a lot of times are much more direct than what we're used to today, and they're still the right questions. Yeah. And also, I read, uh, actually, had, I took a class in college where we read modern political philosophy, and we read uh, Nozick and Rawls, and I can't remember what else. And it tends to be very, you'll know this, but it's highly technical, which is to yeah. say completely unapproachable. And I remember writing a right. paper at the end of it, and the professor said, you know, tell us what this all means. And I said, it doesn't mean anything, because nobody <laughs> can understand it. <laughs> very true. You know, one of the ways that this, is, that this debate, that the Brookfield debate is so appealing, is that both of them were writing for a general audience, because yeah. both of them were involved in politics. They weren't just political thinkers. They were very much political actors. Yeah. Uh, you know, Burke was a politician. He, he ran mm. for election every few years while he was writing all the wonderful things that we read. Paine was personally directly involved in both the American and the French revolutions. And both of them had to write for an audience that did not consist of academics. And so while they address very deep questions, they address them in ways that are very, very accessible. I'm sorry, but I, again, we'll get to Burke and, and Paine in just a second. But I am, again, while you were talking, I was thinking about the difference between the books that someone like Burke would write as a politician and the books that modern politicians write. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> I, it occurred to me quite a lot in reading Burke is that I can't think of anybody who, uh, it may be that in his prime, Daniel Patrick Moynihan could yeah. have been a Spencer and write such things, but I, I can't think of anybody today. Yeah. No, it's pretty comical, really, if you think about it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no disrespect to any of the, our, our politicians. They have to write those books. No, so, I think you're right. <laughs> so, so tell us who... Um, Burke and Payne were in that order, please. Well, so um, Edmund Burke was an Irish-born English politician and writer. He was uh, a member of the House of Commons for 30 years at the end of the 18th century. Um, he was born in 1729. Uh, he died in 1797. Uh, and he's been thought of as one of the fathers of modern conservatism because of his emphasis on generational continuity, on gradualism, on respect for tradition and for existing institutions, and because of his skepticism about human power and human knowledge, and, his, and, and of course his criticism of the radicalism of the French Revolution. Burke, in his career, his political career, is first and foremost a reformer. Um, he sought to fix the problems that presented themselves on the surface of the English system, the English Constitution, as he described it, in an effort to prevent those problems from becoming so large that they would invite much more radical transformations. Um, and so it was reform in the service of preservation. And that made him a, a difficult person to understand. He was a Whig, uh, not a Tory. And so although we think of him as the father of conservatism, um, he belonged to the party of progress, to the party of, uh, of reform. And his was certainly a very forward-looking uh, traditionalism. It was a traditionalism that said the present is better than the past, and we should preserve the ways by which it has become so, so that things can, can continue to get better. And in that sense, he offers a conservatism that is not the, 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 the 18th century continental throne and altar kind of uh, conservatism that just resists change, it's just uh, reactionism. He offers a, a liberal conservatism, a, an approach to the liberal society that wants to preserve the best uh, of what we have. Thomas Paine was uh, an English-born immigrant to America who became one of the most eloquent and most important voices uh, championing independence for the colonies. Um, he was a contemporary of Burke's. He was, uh, he was seven years younger than Burke and lived in just about the same years, worked in the, in the same years. 
Um, he was uh, the author of Common Sense, of the Crisis Papers, a very important activist for independence. And then as, uh, as revolution was brewing in France, he became a very influential advocate of the revolutionary's cause in the English-speaking world. Uh, he went there. He was in Paris uh, and in London during the period of the revolution and uh, made the case for, for, for the radicalism of the French Revolution to an English-speaking audience. Mm-hmm. Um, Paine was a master of the English language um, and a fervent believer in the potential of Enlightenment ideas to uproot corruption and oppression um, and advance the cause of justice. He's thought of as one of the fathers of modern progressivism because of his emphasis on liberating the individual from the restraints of tradition and authority uh, and, and the authority of the past, his extraordinary faith in the power of human reason uh, to reshape the world, and his desire to break with the past, to build social institutions from scratch on the proper foundations. He was a real revolutionary, and so was one of the one of the pr- most prominent faces of late 18th century radicalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brooke and Payne knew each other. Uh, they met several times in person. They exchanged a fair number of letters, which are very interesting, almost all of them about the French Revolution. And most importantly, they, they answered one another's published writings. Um, Payne's most important book, The Rights of Man, was a direct response. It said so in its subtitle, a direct response to Burke's uh, most important writing, The Reflections on the Revolution in France. And Burke then responded to Paine with an essay called An Appeal from the Old to the New Whigs, uh, from the New to the Old Whigs, excuse me, um, published the year after The Rights of Man, and answered it directly. Paine then responds with the second volume of The Rights of Man. And so they had a real conversation in public that uh, drew an enormous amount of attention, both in Britain and in America, um, and really started to lay out a set of divisions, a set of arguments that uh, has been very important to the political development of, of Britain and America and now well beyond it uh, ever since. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. So let's actually get into the ideas themselves. And I think that your uh, analysis of their ideas begins at exactly the right place. When I talk to my students about these things, I begin just here as well. And that is with human nature and especially the historical process. I think really the historical process, the way in which that is understood, is fundamental to the, this this difference. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So in a sense, Burke and Payne both themselves began with the question of nature and history. Um, Payne argues that in order to understand the principles of politics, we have to look past history, that history is just a kind of tale of errors and woes, and the principles that need to guide politics are natural principles of justice, uh, the kinds of knowledge about politics that we can gain through enlightenment science, enlightenment political science, the application of the kinds of scientific principles that were emerging, that had emerged in the enlightenment in the previous century, need to be applied to society. And what they would show us, he thought, was a a set of timeless principles that were not a function of any particular society, that were not a function of any particular regime, but they were just true about human beings, that we're all equal, that we are all born free and deserve our liberty, uh, and therefore that we create society in order to enable us to be safe in our freedom uh, and to make choices as free individuals. This is a familiar idea. It's, uh, it's a Lockean idea, and Paine very explicitly resorts to Locke's kind of state of nature um, to explain his understanding of where society comes from and where rights come from and what uh, rights and freedoms mean. And he basically says uh, that 
political principles are timeless. Uh, they exist, as it were, in an eternal now, a wonderful phrase of his. Um, and so the purpose of society is really to apply them to the real world and so to enable people to be free um, and to enable societies to thrive. Mm-hmm. Burke says, Burke also begins with nature. As a young man, uh, he wrote an essay that was on its face a kind of critique of deism, um, of, of natural religion, but where immediately it turns to politics and says, if you apply this kind of idea, Paine's exactly Paine's kind of idea, um, to political life, it would basically mean that you would have to dissolve all political institutions because none of them are legitimate. Only the individual and his rights matter. But in fact, Burke says, the idea of the state of nature, useful as it might be as a thought experiment, we have to confront the fact that no one's ever lived in such a state. <laughs> it simply can't be that any human being ever lived without society, uh, yeah. at least without a family. Yeah. And so the notion that societies were founded by free individuals uh, is preposterous on its face, because there could never have been free individuals without a society in which they lived. Mm-hmm. And so for him, the the context in which human beings find themselves is enormously meaningful and important. And uh, he thinks human beings can really only be understood in society. He offers something like an Aristotelian idea that society allows the human being to achieve uh, to achieve his potential in ways that could never be achieved otherwise. And so you can't really understand the human being in full outside of society. Mm-hmm. And so rather than rather than insist that uh, that the, 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 the theories of rights that emerge from Lockean liberalism are not true, he just says what matters is the human being in society, is that person's freedom, that person's rights, that person's obligations. And we can really only work our way to political principles through the study of history, through understanding how our societies evolve, um, because the evolution of society is a process by which we, through trial and error, try to find the best ways to live. And that means that society is an evolved thing um, and, and is adapted to the needs of its, of its citizens. And so his political science always works through human society and through the histories of particular societies. He doesn't think you can just start over from scratch or that you can imagine in the abstract what, uh, what human beings are. Um, and so the difference between them begins in this very profound difference where Burke offers a very deep opposition to the basic theory of Enlightenment liberalism, mm-hmm. uh, to the basic Lockean foundation of what we think of as the free society. And he says, I'm a fan of the free society, too. But it didn't come to be from people forming uh, a nation from scratch as individuals. It came to be through English history. And that means that we need to understand uh, how our charters have developed, how our ideas of freedom have developed. And we need to build on the traditions that we've been given by the people who preceded us, rather than imagine that we can throw it all away and build something better on our own, because we now have the right principles. Mm-hmm. I just find that fascinating, and, it, and you know, I don't mean to take sides, but it seems to me that the that that pain, I, I guess, probably knowingly, just misconstrues or misunderstands how liberty evolved. Maybe he knew, I don't know, but the, the application of abstract principles to concrete societies is, well, I guess we've seen where that has led us. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it just, yeah, and that's right. And, and it's led us that way exactly and through the kind of radicalism that, uh, that Paine embodies. He really does think that once you have the right principles, you can apply them directly to political life. And, uh, you know, Burke argues that's, that's a path to uh, totally unmooring people from civilization and yeah. uh, kind of limits that prevent us from uh, from being animals. Uh-huh. There's another thing that I often say, I don't remember if this is true or not, <laughs> I'll admit, but I often say to my students is that about Burke is that one of the things he says, which is relevant to historians, is that we might think we know why something happened, but we really don't. And so we shouldn't yeah. tinker with it, right? We don't know yeah, why that is. Yeah, That's quite right. It's, and it's very important to his to his approach to social change. Burke says that a lot of the knowledge that any society has is contained in the forms of its institutions. Um, Social institutions come to be, as I say, through a kind of evolutionary process of trial and error, and that means that they've taken the shapes they've taken in response to particular needs of a particular society in particular times, and it hasn't been done rationally. They're, 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 They're human creations. They're not natural, but they're not designed. They've taken shape over a long period of time, and so it's not really possible to us fully to know why they work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Burke, because he has fairly low expectations of human reason and human power, he thinks human beings are fallen creatures, imperfect creatures. He finds himself kind of surprised that anything works at all. <laughs> and, uh, and so he thinks when, when things do, when you run across institutions that allow for freedom and order and happiness, you should be very, very careful about changing them because you should never imagine that you fully understand how and why they work. Yeah, and I don't know. I can tell you that as a practicing, I guess, professional historian, this I can validate this. <laughs> I, yeah. I will sometimes say, well, this happened because of that, and then I'll just have to sort of smile and say, you know, I really don't know why that happened. <laughs> this looks yeah. good, and I have to write something. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conceit that hist- historians have, and uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah, I find that true. So, let's move on in the book. So, um, we have these two uh, opposing um, understandings of of nature and history. Uh, let's move on to what they think and what follows from that about uh, justice and order. Yeah. So, for pain. Justice follows directly from the kind of natural principles of politics. In other words, the principles are morally freighted. They, the fact that human beings are, as a matter of their natural existence, free and equal individuals, means that politics has to be ordered around the protection of that uh, freedom and equality. And so for him, there's no trouble in seeing what principles of justice ought to guide politics. Um, and he thinks the political lives of most of the European societies have not adhered to these principles and therefore have been despotic, have been tyrannical, have oppressed the weak under the boot of the strong. And Paine is very deeply moved by a passion for justice, by a desire to liberate the weak uh, from the oppression of the strong. His, his moral principles are very stark and very directed to the defense of the weak. He's, you know, Paine always described himself as, uh, as at, at most a deist, but really in some respects an atheist. But it's absolutely clear that Paine was shaped by the, by the Quaker beliefs of his father, who was a very devout Quaker. And he has very, very stark moral principles um, and thinks that politics needs to answer to that. He always says things are just simpler than that. He responds to Burke's very complex and arcane descriptions of society by saying, at the end of the day, we cannot allow the strong to oppress the weak, the rich to oppress the poor. And this is what he's moved by. His politics is very much a politics of justice. It's certainly mm-hmm. the most appealing thing about pain. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, for Burke, of course, politics has to answer to some principles of justice, but he, he thinks it's much harder for us to know what those are than Paine does. He thinks we cannot be nearly so confident about where those principles point in, in, on any particular political question. And he thinks that most political questions, because they present themselves within the boundaries of the constitutional system, as he understands it in Britain, should be settled by prudence. That is, you don't really know the right answer until you see what works and what doesn't work. Most mm-hmm. of politics, he says, is not, is not fundamental, is not profound, it's practical, it's prudential. But there are times when you have to face very fundamental questions of justice, and it's in those times that you have to think about the principles that underlie your society. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the way you can do that, in his view, is through an understanding of the history of your society, of how it has taken form, of what kinds of principles have led to the best kinds of politics, uh, in his case, in English history. And he thinks that English history, in particular, has allowed for an extraordinary balance of, uh, of freedom and order, and that the goal of, of British society, but really of any society, is to become more like its best self. That's the way in which it ought to change and, and advance. <clears throat> and that's the nature of his conservatism. He thinks that change should be guided by the best of what we've been. Not that there shouldn't be change. In fact, there had to be. But it sh- that it should be guided by the best of what society has been. That means that his principles of justice are much less stark and, in a certain sense, much less satisfying than Paine's, who says, I'm for equality, I'm for uh, liberty, and all of politics has to be guided by those. <clears throat> Burke says, I'm for a government that makes the people happy and allows them a space to build their thriving private lives. He doesn't think the purpose of politics is exactly to take us somewhere, to take us toward a perfect application of, uh, of political principles. In that sense, his politics is not progressive, he thinks the purpose of politics is to protect the space in which in which thriving private lives can happen. It's an important purpose. He thinks government is extremely important um, and 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 an, an utterly vital social institution. But he doesn't think it's guided by abstract principles in the same way. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded here of the word tradition, and uh, it's obvious that the two of them see tradition in a very very different lights. Could you talk a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, that's very true and very important to the difference between them. Um, Paine thinks of tradition as um, as a kind of undiscriminating way of accepting what, what happened in the past. And he thinks that no political idea can justify itself simply by its having been around for a long time. That's just not a good enough argument for doing anything. Mm-hmm. And everything in politics has to justify itself by reference to the proper principles of politics. Burke thinks... Again, because he doesn't have such a high view of what our individual reason can discern, he thinks that what our society has done in the past is a hugely important fact about how, uh, about how we've come to be, about what works in society. And so he thinks that tradition has to be given a lot of authority. Um, now, tradition for him does not mean simply looking backwards to the past. There, there, there are two very different ways of understanding the idea of tradition. One of them is to say that um, the principles and the ideals that should guide society were best understood once upon a time in some great moment of founding that we always have to hearken back to, but that in a sense all movement since then has been downward uh, from a great height that was achieved in the, in the perfect origin 
obviously this kind of tradition is also associated with the biblical religions, uh, which which try always to remain connected to an, an authoritative original source of truth. But there's another notion of tradition which says that we should value what has come down to us from the past because it's come from, it's the result of a process, of a kind of evolutionary process, by which human beings, generation after generation, have tried to improve their societies, improve their lives, and address the kinds of needs that human beings always feel. And so what they did has a lot to teach us about what we can do, and involves a lot more experience, a lot more trial and error, a lot more wisdom than any of us could hope to possess on our own. Mm -hmm. And so tradition is valued for its being advanced, for its being adapted. This is very much Burke's view of tradition. He thinks that the, the institutions we have, the things we inherit in society, are the best sources of information we have about how human beings can thrive. And so we should start by, first of all, being grateful for them, and second, by being protective of them. That doesn't mean we don't change them, but it means we try to change them by making them better rather than change them by throwing them out and uh, and starting over. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For some reason, whenever I think about this moment in Burke's thought, I have the phrase congealed wisdom in my mind. Where did I get that? Tradition is the congealed wisdom of generations. Did I make that yeah, up? That, well, I don't think that. No, works, I didn't make that uh, up. It certainly yeah. might be. No, I don't um, think it is. But, you know, that, that I think that nicely yeah. captures what he's talking about. It absolutely it, describes his, his view. Yeah, yeah exactly. We, we, um, it, it, it works. We don't quite know why it works. We cannot define its origins exactly. It is definitely the result of tinkering and not architecture, if you see the difference, yeah. you know, but yeah. there it is, and, and it is there, it's, it's working, and so we probably shouldn't futz with it too much except to make it better, whereas yeah. pain is basically throw one, that one out. One way to think about better. this is that Burke begins in gratitude, he begin, because he begins with a sense that it's very hard to turn the, the horribly imperfect raw material that is humanity into a working society, we should be grateful for the the examples we have of how that has been done well. Pain starts from outrage at failure because he thinks that it is much easier to form successful social institutions, that we can do it by applying the right kinds of principles. He thinks there's just no excuse for imperfection. There's no excuse for failure to uh, to address social needs, no excuse for failure to persist in injustice. And so his basic disposition is to look at an imperfect world and a mix of good and bad and be, first of all, outraged at the bad. Burke looks at the same world, at the same mix of good and bad, and is, first of all, thankful for the good. And that's, in some respects, a subtle difference. They both accept that there is good and bad. They both think that some things should be preserved and others should be thrown away. But those different starting points make a huge difference. And they're, they're evident in a lot of ways in, the, in, in some of the differences between conservatives and progressives even now. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on a little bit. We've talked about rights, uh, but we haven't talked about obligations yet. How do, obviously, in republics, citizens have obligations? Uh, oddly enough, I talked to my students about this yesterday, and they were unaware of this. <laughs> well, awfully easy to be unaware of it. Uh, I'm, I'm not kidding you. They really weren't. They were not aware of this. But in any event, um, but in any event obligations in a republic, citizens have obligations. How, how do the two of them deal with these obligations? Yeah. Well, you know, because Paine starts out by saying that the purpose of politics is to protect our freedom to choose, to protect our, our uh, individual liberty and our equality, 
he basically thinks that what we owe society is a function of what it takes to protect that that individual liberty. And in a sense, what we owe is uh, respect for other people's equality and uh, and liberty. That the purpose of politics is to enable everyone to make free choices to the extent possible. And so, uh, while there are some uh, constraints on our freedom that we accept just as a function of living in society, the purpose of all of them is to allow us to be as free uh, and equal as possible. Burke says, because he starts from a very different way of understanding social relations, as, as, as we've talked about already, Burke basically says that kind of fetish of choice in modern life is based in an error. Uh, it's based in an erroneous understanding of the fundamental nature of human life, because basically our lives are structured above all around unchosen obligations, unchosen obligations that begin in the family. We don't choose our parents. We don't choose our place in society. We don't choose the community we're born into. But the fact that we didn't choose it doesn't mean that we don't owe them a great deal. Um, and no one is born into an empty world that uh, he gets to shape on his own. Everyone is born into a world that exists before him. And the place where he happens to be born in that world provides him both with some privileges and with some obligations. And society has to be formed around these inescapable facts rather than being formed around a desire to be liberated from those facts, which Burke thinks is both inadvisable and at the end of the day just impossible. Mm -hmm. And so for him, it really is, the, 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 the purpose of the free society is to allow people to thrive, given the fact that they have a lot of unchosen obligations that are not simply burdens. The, the obligations we have to our society, to our community, to our family, uh, are the sources of our happiness much of the time. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't think of them as just limits on freedom that, uh, that, that undermine our ability to thrive. He thinks, just, he thinks society should make a lot of room for people to meet those obligations, should make it easier for them to do, rather than pretend that what everybody wants is to be liberated of all, of all obligations to other people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here we come back to history, because, uh, you know, as you say, you are born into the world, this is for some reason particularly appropriate right after Thanksgiving, with a lot of obligations, particularly familial ones, <laughs> that, yeah. that you did not choose. You know, you got to spend Thanksgiving with the uncle that you hate, you know, and there he is, and <laughs> you got to do that. And, and you know, but, but then again, you might get to see your sister, which would be good. Whereas, you know, pain yeah. is, is what would do away with Thanksgiving. If you didn't like it, you shouldn't go, you know? So I don't know if you'd say that or not, but, but it's, it's clearly the case. I mean, empirically, it is clearly the case that you are born into a, uh, I mean, Marx said this, you know, you're born into a condition, not of your own making that has lots of things that, that bind you and make you free. Oh. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, let's come to the, um, the next section of the book and it's about reason. Uh, and obviously the, 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 the two gentlemen think differently about reason. Uh, could you talk a yeah. little bit about that? Yeah, so this really follows quite directly. Um, Paine, because he believes that politics is a matter of applied principle, that the principles are fairly stark rules, um, and that at the end of the day they all point to individual liberty and to equality, he's a great believer in the power of human reason as understood in the Enlightenment, that is, as a kind of uh, calculating faculty, as a, as a processing faculty that takes knowledge and discovers truth, he thinks that we need to allow that understanding of human reason to basically define society, that human beings need to be understood as rational creatures, need to be respected as such, and that we have it in our power by applying our reason properly to find the ways to solve our social problems, that if we allow a rational politics to take shape, 
There doesn't need to be poverty. There doesn't need to be war. We really can get over these problems, which are basically just functions of oppression, of despotism, of a failure to understand and live by the proper principles of society. This is real Enlightenment radicalism. This is the dream of the Enlightenment, the dream of the French Revolution, a truly rational politics. Brooks says, all that's well and good, but at the end of the day, human beings are much more than their reason. Um, re- the, 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 the human animal is an animal as well as a reasoner, uh, and human beings are also, especially importantly for Burke, subject to sentiments, to, uh, to, to, to emotional influences that are not purely rational, but that are not untrue, that are not unimportant. In fact, Burke thinks that the most important ways in which we are shaped and the most important ways in which we interact with the world are more sentimental than they are rational. Um, and in this sense, he's uh, very much in the tradition of the English Enlightenment, the Scottish Enlightenment, really, more than the Continental Enlightenment. He speaks like Adam Smith, uh, who was a friend of his, uh, like David Hume, and thinks that human beings are not simply uh, reasoning machines, and that you have to respect that fact about them. And so, again, to him, this points back to the need to respect those institutions that over time have given people what they need, have enabled people to be formed into civilized human beings and good citizens. And rather than think that you can throw those away and create a purely rational society that answers all of our needs in in material terms, we have to understand that society does a lot more than that and answers needs that run deeper than that. And for him, this points to what he called prescription rather than reason. Prescription is basically a word to use to describe the kind of process that I've been calling evolutionary in this conversation. Prescription is the way in which society has taken the form that it has, which is a mix of conservation and innovation. Um, It's tinkering with what you have rather than Mm -hmm. starting over. And it's a process by which society gets gradually better and, and, and better adapted to dealing with new circumstances. And he thinks that rather than a purely rational process starting from scratch and applying principles into social life, prescription gives us a way to, um, to gives us a way to thrive as fully human beings. Mm-hmm. I, I find this um, part of the book is very interesting, and 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 what comes to mind when I when I read it and when I think about what Payne and Burke said was, um, I, I just I guess I have to wonder who would think that humans would do something because it made sense. I don't, I, in my experience, like, have you ever tried to change somebody's mind? Have you ever been in a political discussion where you were arguing with somebody and at the end of it somebody said, oh, geez, you're right? Yeah. Has that ever happened? You know, funny, <laughs> the funny thing is Burke himself made exactly this point. He said he doesn't think anybody's ever been persuaded of anything on the floor of the House of Commons. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, in the I, entire history of, of, of Britain. Uh, I think that's true of Congress. I think it's true of just conversations around the dinner table. It's, yeah. very hard to, uh, it's very hard to do that. But, you know, one of the things that this difference about reason points to is a difference about the sorts of knowledge that are available to social reformers. And here I do think there's a difference that's still very much evident in, in contemporary politics, which is Paine tended to think of political life <clears throat> as an arena in which to apply knowledge, to apply what we might think of as even technical knowledge, expert mm-hmm. knowledge, rational knowledge about society that can be applied to address social problems. Burke thought that the only way to even possess, let alone apply, real knowledge about society was 
in a much more dispersed way, that, that social knowledge was not technical, was not expert knowledge, but was, as I said before, contained in the, in the forms of our institutions, contained in the preferences of citizens. And he thought that, that social knowledge could be applied only through institutions that, um, in a sense, gather up dispersed knowledge. He had in mind the social institutions that exist between the individual and the state, uh, from the family to uh, religious institutions, community institutions, all of the little platoons, as he put it, that we all belong to, are really ways of contending with social problems and finding and applying solutions, allowing us to make use of more knowledge than any of us individually possesses. Mm -hmm. And there I do think that there's a, there's a real left-right difference today about what kind of knowledge government can apply to address social problems, where there is a tendency on the left to think that government can't apply expert knowledge, expert technical knowledge. If you think about the healthcare debate today, it's really a debate between whether we can solve the problem we have by applying expertise or by uh, allowing a dispersed institution like a market to collect social knowledge and find efficiencies at the, at, at the ground level. And there are pretty strong arguments in both in both directions on this front. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the the fact that markets achieve efficiency is still very hard for a lot of people to accept. But at the same time, of course, there are ways in which uh, some social problems really are material, almost technical problems. Mm -hmm. And so the right and the left, especially on economic questions, still are very much at odds over exactly the difference that you find between Burke and Payne on this question of knowledge. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, you know, you mentioned the healthcare uh, debate, I guess it is. But, I mean, it seems to me that one of the sides have started from kind of abstract principle, and that is that everybody should have healthcare because everybody needs to be well. You know, I'm just talking as somebody who's self-insured for, you know, 20 years. And, you know, I, yeah. I was okay. <laughs> Maybe, you know, I... Yep. Um, so, so I, yeah. So, anyway, I made my way around the it's system. true. Yeah. That, that's certainly true. Uh, but even if you accept uh, a common goal, uh, which is to allow more people to have access to health coverage, they pursue it in ways that are very telling yeah. about the different... Yeah. Right and left, very yeah, old. that's right. So, uh, you know, again, the healthcare debate. So, say you have to change something. This is the next chapter in your book. What do you do yeah. if you're a pain in Burke? Yeah, well, all of this leads to what really, on the surface, was the Burke pain debate. Those things that you uh, that you assigned to college students to read from the reflections right. of the Revolution of France and uh, and the Rights of Man, they're really about social change. They're about revolution and uh, Paine's way of thinking which is to say society needs to be applied principle, and to the extent that it isn't, uh, it needs to be done away with and replaced by different social institutions, maybe even a different regime that applies the proper principles, leads him to say that the way to get from a broken, despotic regime to a, uh, to a working and free society is to overthrow the existing system and start over. And for him, this points to a genuinely revolutionary way of thinking about politics. He thought that once you have the proper principles in hand, you really can go back to the beginning and start over on the right foundations. Paine thought that that's what the American Revolution involved. In a lot of ways, he had a very radical notion of what the American Revolution was about, which not all of the, uh, not all of the revolutionary generation uh, agreed with him about that. In fact, I think it's fair to say very few of them did. Um, and he certainly had that view about the French Revolution, and that was the view that was very widely shared among the leaders of the French Revolution. 
They were overthrowing the regime and starting over on the right principles to enable people to be free and equal. Burke, as I say, exactly for all the reasons we've discussed, thought that throwing everything away was not a way to start over on the right foundations. It was a way to revert to barbarism. It was a way to forget everything we've ever learned uh, and, uh, in effect, start over as a much less developed society. And that's very unlikely to lead, uh, in, in short order, to liberty and equality. He thought society had to be improved by building on what was good about it to address what was bad about it. Mm -hmm. Reform was his watchword. Burke always described himself as a reformer. Uh, It's a funny thing, as a a college student at Trinity College in Dublin, he and a few friends started a small journal called The Reformer. Um, And from then on, Burke always loved that word. He thought reform was very different from, from revolution, very different even from change. Reform was improvement, and this is what he thought social change should involve. Mm-hmm. And so he disagreed profoundly with the notion that you could improve things by throwing away what you had. He thought you could improve things by understanding what was good about them and building on Yeah. I learned this um, lesson myself while playing pickup basketball many years ago um, at, at a university, and there was what was called the noon game, or maybe it was the afternoon game. I can't remember. And it had been going on forever. This is a very old university. And, like, people's grandparents played in this game, in this, this particular gym. And it ran in a certain way. It was totally congealed wisdom. There were no rules. There were no posted rules. It was just this is the way they did things, right? It happened just like this. And it wasn't particularly fair or anything like that. But for whatever reason, too many people started to come to this noon game. And I thought to myself, well, if we make these adjustments, then everybody will get to play more. And so I try to convince people that if we do this certain scheme, we'll change the rules, and then everybody will get to play more. You can kind of imagine how that went. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, what? (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. Why? Because this is the way we do things. You know, that was it. It was just that was it. You know, I, and you know, so I was. I certainly understood it at that point. Um, even though it made good sense, you know, I thought it was a perfect yeah, exactly. scheme. You, you know, it really worked well on paper, man. It really did work well on paper, but it never happened. So, um, yeah. the 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 final chapter, a substantive chapter of the book, is interesting to me because you talk about uh, the relationship between generations. It's kind of a. Yeah. I, I don't know. I found it kind of a curious place to stop. But can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it, it's the final chapter because as I wrote this book and as I and as I read the writings of these two great writers and thinkers, the question, that, the subject that kept coming back up was the question of what we might owe the past, of what authority the world we were born into could exercise over us. And again and again, in thinking about all the different subjects that we've just taken up, it seems like they reverted back to that question, the question of context, um, of whether it matters what world you're born into. Paine very much wants to say that it shouldn't matter, that the purpose of society should be to enable every person to be as free as he would have been had he been the first person ever born. And this is just how he puts it. Um, Now, he knows, of course, that that can't be achieved entirely, but he thinks that that should be the goal that guides social reform and and revolution and change. And... um, He's especially concerned about obligations or limitations that people have imposed on them by the past. So if society as a whole, through a majority vote, decides to do something, you may not like it, but it's happened through the right kind of of decision process. But if past generations have imposed something on you, then you simply have had no say over your own situation. And this strikes him as the most significant, maybe the worst kind of oppression uh, that there can be. This Mm -hmm. is why Paine is so adamantly opposed to monarchy. 
to the idea that someone should be ruler over other people simply because his father was. Um, and so for him, the, 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 a, a crucially important purpose of, of, of social revolution, of, of enlightenment liberalism, is to liberate people from the oppression of the past and to enable them to have a say over their own society. Burke again and again says that not only is this impossible, it's also totally undesirable, that in fact the inheritance we receive from the past is enormously important. But what you realize as they work through this, and especially as they engage one another about this and come to see exactly what the, the opposite point of view involves, is that the disagreement is even more profound than that. Burke comes to believe that any view of society that begins in a state of nature argument, where our conversation today started, inevitably has to ignore the relationships between generations. Because if you imagine society as having been created by free adults, essentially, um, and if you want the idea of rights that defines society to be defined through that understanding, then you have to ignore the fact that people are born into a society that they don't choose to create and that they don't get to shape. And that means that essentially one of the most important facts about human beings, the brute fact that we are born, uh, has to be ignored by liberalism in order for liberalism to be able to function. This for Burke is just an obvious and enormous problem with the way of thinking about society that was advanced by the Enlightenment radicals. And he thinks that by, by seeking to break apart the connections between generations, they make it impossible for society to function at all. And he thinks, in fact, that what happens at that juncture of generations, the unchosen obligations that are formed there are the essence of social life, or what it's all about, or what the rest of it is meant to sustain and enable and improve. And to ignore that is to ignore really what society is for. And so these two come down to a profound disagreement about how we should think about the intersection of generations, how we should think about the relation of generations. And it turns out, I think, that this difference of opinion is at the core of a lot of the difference between the left and the right in their time, but also in our very different time, that how we think about the obligations we have to past generations and how we think about the limitations they can place on us has a huge amount to do with how we think about politics more generally. And so I end on that subject because it seems to be a subject that ties together a lot of their different disagreements, that at the end of the day, when they work their way down to the bottom, to the floor of their disagreement, what they're arguing about is really the relationship between the present and the past. Mm -hmm. I mean, to put it even more strongly, I would say that it's a, it's a that they're talking about the relationship between, well, I, I don't exactly know how to put it, but I interviewed a fellow who wrote a book called Against Fairness. He was a philosopher, very interesting. And one of the things that he realized, he had been you know, trained as a moral philosopher and, and you know, had gone to all the best schools and thought deeply about these things, was that he could not be fair when it came to his children. Other mm -hmm. people did not matter. His, his children always took precedence, that he could do nothing else. You know, he physically could do nothing else. He could not treat other people fair, fairly. And it seems to me that, you know, and, and he wrote a whole book about it. And I mean, that there is something to that, that you're asking, yeah. you're asking people to do something they cannot do when you're saying, treat your children like everybody else. Mm -hmm. you, you can't do that. <laughs> it's not physically possible. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it is for some people, but 
I, I don't know them. You know, yeah. and, and we've experimented yeah, you know, with that. You know, the Soviets experimented with that kind of thing. Not very successful. Exactly. Yeah. The, the most radical social reformers have always tried to break up the family. Yeah. Uh, because they've understood that the family is the source of the greatest resistance to truly radical social transformation. I mean, you see it in Plato's Republic. Uh, you know, you see it in the Soviet Union. You see it in, 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 in less pernicious ways in the kibbutz movement in Israel. Yeah. They, yeah. for a time, tried to raise children in common. Right. But it can't be done. Yeah. And Burke says it, the fact that it can't be done doesn't mean that we're inevitably unjust. It means we have to form society around the realities of right. what a human being is, yeah. rather than try to insist that we can change those realities to suit the, the right. abstract principles that we want to impose. And it's been very interesting as I've, as I've grown a little bit older. You know, I had friends when I was young, good, good friends, who were, you know, they were very, they were would-be academics and uh, sort of professors in training, and they were all as liberal as liberal becomes, you know, and and now I know them, and they're and they all have kids, and 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 several of them, I can think of two, send their kids to private schools, like expensive private schools, right? And yeah. it's not like they live in the Bronx. I mean, they live in really nice places where the where the public schools are good enough. And I I've talked to them, and I said, well, why do you do that? You know, and they're like, well, I just want the best for my children. Yeah, and I think no, well, just, yes, that's okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Irving Crystal once said that a, a conservative is a libertarian with a daughter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot to that. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a certain amount of sense. But you know, I, I did think about it. I'm like, wow, you know, that's that's would I do that? I mean, I can't afford it, but would I do? That? I might do that. Yeah, you know, I sure. I just want to make sure yeah. that my kids are okay. I mean, your kids, right. yeah, I'll pay taxes and everything. That's fine, but. I'm sending my kids to private school. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I um I wanted to talk to you about one thing that one idea that does not really appear. At least I think it doesn't appear in this book. And this again, uh, I don't know a lot about uh, political philosophy, but I am a historian. And that is something that was very important in classical political theory. And that is the notion of virtue. Where is virtue in? In and it seems like the, both these guys are sort of consequentialists. Like we should do these things because they work out, um, not because they're right. Maybe I'm wrong about pain, but no, go ahead. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a certain sense, they each have a, 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 an idea of justice that goes well beyond consequentialism. Pain, as I said before, certainly has believes that society has to answer to principles that are not merely consequential, that, that respect for the liberty of the individual um, should override even the goals of, of good government or of uh, effective outcomes. And so... It's not exactly an idea of virtue, but it's an idea of liberty that for him, uh, and equality that for him substitutes for classical virtue. Burke, as usual, is more complicated. Um, Burke is a kind of Aristotelian. He does believe in virtue. And um, in, in the chapter on nature in this book, I do talk about the ways in which he was concerned that by, by unmooring people from their, uh, from their traditional dispositions and practices, you risked separating them from uh, a commitment to virtue, which, which Burke described with the old-fashioned term chivalry, uh, which is hard for us to take seriously. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't quite mean it the way that we now use the term. Um, he means chivalry in the sense of restraints on our, uh, on our ambition, on our self-interest, restraints in the service of a kind of softness that makes society possible. And... For him, this was defined by uh, an idea of virtue that existed above social and political life. But again, he didn't think that it was a notion that could be reached in an explicit, precise, philosophical mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, he thought you only approach these kinds of truths in a kind of vague way that's made available to you uh, precisely through tradition rather than around it. But he certainly believed that 
that kind of notion of virtue, and it does come close to the classical, or at least the Aristotelian idea of virtue, uh, was essential to the functioning of society. He just didn't think, as Paine did, that it was a matter of applying explicit abstract principles. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I'm tempted to ask a question for which I sort of know the answer. Um, I, I'm sort of an empiricist myself, and you know I like to judge ideas uh, on their merits. Um, and, it, and it does seem to me that, uh, as a historian, I can tell you that these two programs have been tried out over the last 200 years. <laughs> And one of them has worked a lot better than the other. Is, would you associate yourself with that? Well, I, you know, I think so. I mean, first of all, I, I, I would say I'm, I'm a conservative, and I'm drawn to Burke. I'm drawn to his way of thinking. I'm drawn to his ideas and uh, to the approach that he proposes much more than the one that Paine does. But um, in a certain sense, both of them have been tried out at the same time mm-hmm. in our own political system. And... I have to say there are ways in which the combination has worked better than either one would probably work by itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in our political system, neither has been tried at its most extreme form, um, and that's because of the other. So they've tended to moderate each other, to pull one another back, and our politics has existed in a constant state of tension between left and right. <laughs> where there are certainly ambitions uh, that are almost utopian uh, that drive a lot of our political life, ambitions toward egalitarianism and towards personal liberation that are very powerfully felt, uh, that mostly come from the left in our politics. There are also inclinations to restraint and preservation and conservation and uh, resistance to change that come from the right in our politics. Um, and I think both of these can claim some significant achievements for themselves. What they don't usually acknowledge is that they also owe a lot to the other. They owe restraint to the other. I think our political system embodies the tension, the debate between these two, more than it embodies either one. And that's probably for the best. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would agree with that. I, I really would. And, and I want to be fair to, to people who are fans of of um, pain. And there have been some moments where I have to say uh, my, my sort of Burkean instincts have been wrong. I mean, one of them was um, uh, what's happened recently with gay marriage. Uh, yeah, I, had, I, I did not expect it to basically sweep the nation as it has. I'm not saying there are a lot of people that don't like gay marriage, but, but yeah. I, I, I was really surprised that Americans thought what they thought or they had their minds changed. I can't tell which, but it, it, I, I don't know what you thought of that, but I was really kind of gobsmacked by it. Um, you know, the debate with concerning uh, um, uh, national health care, uh, I prefer that to Obamacare, that, that one is going uh, along, I think, predictable lines. That, that one I understand. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it, it, is, it, is, it is interesting that we have these two things embodied in our, um, in, in our political system. And one thing is, is good is it just gives us stuff to talk about all the time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And the, the tension is a creative tension a lot of the time because, because neither is horribly radical. Neither takes it the whole way. Yeah. We have seen attempts to, you know, the French Revolution uh, really was an effort to uh, take Paine's way of thinking all the way, and uh, it worked out very poorly. There have been mm-hmm. other kinds of radical revolutionary attempts uh, that were related in their outlook and have turned out very poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. I, 
you know, you can't claim that 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 either of these uh, has the answer fully. But mm. I think what we found in practice is that the tension between them uh, can make for a lot of room to thrive. Yeah, well put, well put. I like that. Well, um, Yuval, thank you very much for uh, this very interesting discussion. We've taken up a lot of your time, and I appreciate it. And I want to close the interview uh, with our traditional final question, and that is, what are you working on now? Yeah, well, you know, I'm always working on, uh, first of all, the quarterly magazine that I edit. Uh, I'm also always working on shorter policy pieces, and I'm, I'm thinking about what the next book ought to be. Uh, I can't say that I quite have the answer just yet. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Uh, today we've been talking to Yuval Levin about his book, The Great Debate, Edmund Burke, Thomas Paine, and the Birth of the Right and the Left. I encourage you to go out and buy this book. It's very interesting, and I've really enjoyed my discussion with Yuval, so thank you for being on the show. Thank you. All right, and let me say thank you to everybody who's listened to this podcast. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. I hope you have a great week.